we had a contact at Broadsheet. And so that was when they had a massive reach. And so they published this thing on their front page, which was, is Pod and Parcel revolutionizing the coffee pod industry? And that day we did around 5K in sales, with no ad spend. And it just blew my mind. I literally was just floating. Like my mind was just in another world. And then we got on Shark Tank in 2018. And that was a really big turning point because the viewership's massive. And I remember we did lots of sales that day. It was very encouraging. And we got a deal. The way you grow, the things you have to deal with, the ambiguity, the self-confidence. It's not even about the business in the end of the day. It's about you growing as a person. We were doing pretty much six months, six, seven months in, a million a month in sales. We go to our existing supplier and we say, we want the bed sheets. We want these. We probably sent five, six, seven hundred thousand, a ballpark, hundred K of bed sheets, just straight off the bat. We're like, we're going to be so rich. We're going to make so much money. Stockland started selling it. It's okay. Go, goes pretty well. Within two, three weeks, we get a cease and desist. And basically they say to us, give us all your stock and stop operations immediately. Just quickly before we get started, guys, if you've been enjoying the podcast, can I please ask that you consider leaving a five-star review and subscribing or whatever platform you've been listening. It really helps the podcast grow. All right, we're back. Ben Goodman, co-founder of Sylvie, founder of Pot and Parcel. For everyone listening, I know a lot of people love Ecom that listen to this, obviously, from what I've done uh, with Happy Skin Co. But this guy's done multiple eight figures in e-commerce. There's going to be so much value in here. Um, but I want to start at a different place before we jump right into all the Sylvie stuff. I was doing some research on you, as I always do with our guests, about, you know, how you got to where you are. And it was really cool. Like, there's a lot of similarities, or there's one key similarity about our journey that we'll talk about soon. But the first question I want to start with you is, I've, like I said, I've done my research. I've heard you speak about business. You're a very intelligent man. I like the way you think about process and business and business improvement. Um, but the first question I have from you, just looking at your past and what you did at uni, is, did, did you always know you wanted to run your own businesses or when, when did when did you start to figure that out? Yeah, good question. And the the answer is absolutely not. Yep, same. Dude, I, I have no entrepreneurial spirit in my family. <laughs> yep. Like my both my folks are uh, therapists. Oh, so yeah. <clears throat> yeah, they're from the UK. Born in New Zealand, came over, only child. So the only entrepreneurial thing I think I have is kind of some like weird level of discipline that I think you have as well. And the only child of two therapists would have been an interesting childhood, Dude, right? Yeah, it was, it was interesting, but, um, but yeah, being, a, you know, kind of being an only child, I think you, you, I think you form this level of independence that you, you're able to, I don't know, it's like discipline or you, you make your own fun, but basically started out, did a science degree as an undergraduate like classic, had no idea what I wanted to do. You know, you get kind of ushered, like, I'm pretty good at biology. Yep. And so I did a science degree at Monash, cruised through, no side hustle, no nothing. Like I cannot express how unentrepreneurial I was when I was younger. Then after that, I graduated and I realized there was just nothing I wanted to do. Like just not like it was either a, a, a researcher or I could be on going to be a doctor, but I'm like, I don't think I'm smart enough. So I'm not even going to try that. Maybe physiotherapy, tried that for six months, dropped out. And then I was just like bopping around, right? I get it like a little sales gig. I was selling fitness equipment and I kind of like that. You know, I thought that was, that was, I think sales gigs are good, but I was more interested in like the business side. I remember the owner would like kind of show me the business side and he had all these like training videos on HR and kind of all these different aspects, right? 
And I don't know, that just got my interest. And so I thought, all right, I should go back. I should go to get like a real job. And I just decided to do a master's in business. It had like a little sciencey twist, but I'm like, all right, I'll go and study again, which is again, not entrepreneurial. Did pretty well. I get a job three weeks after that as a business consultant. I'm like, all right, I've made it. And I swear to God, six weeks in, I'm on my phone to my old man. And I'm like, I don't think it's for me. This is, you know, I was in like oversized, my $200 suit, you yeah, know, yeah. like just. Cash cash yeah, 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 exactly. Tarot cash. That's hilarious. <laughs> I know. That's oh, a throwback. Um, but yeah, you know, like just suit and tie, going to the office, just the thought of sitting down at a desk and having someone telling me what to do. Just like very quickly, I knew I didn't want to do it although that was after five, six years of study, so I'm dumb. But anyway, that's, that's my path. And, uh, and no, really it was out of the desperation. My old man said, you stay in that job for two years because if, if you quit under two years, this was his theory, if you quit under two years, you won't get employed again. Yeah, so no you, one's gonna so hire yeah, you, right? you stay in there for two years and that's it. I'm like, all right, I'm going to figure it out. And by cosmic luck, I remember I had a manager. His name was Shay. Shout out to Shay. He was a f five to six years older than me. And he, this was back in 2014 when like, you know, like e-com was just, Shopify was just yeah. kind of like kind of growing. I didn't even think Highsmile had launched in 2014. No. Oh, yeah, yeah. There? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, 14 or 15. But he had a little side hustle, Barnaby Socks. I still remember it, selling socks. And this was, uh, he was known as the sock guy in the company. And he was, he had a, like an, a cool Instagram account. And that was back when, you know, you could send stock the product to people and you would actually get sales and you would grow the account. And he just, he would be on, his, on the phone to like a Turkish supplier and he would, you know, working with influencers and the whole thing, it just sowed the seed that I thought I could maybe do that, get him to teach me how he's doing it. And if, even if I could cover my rent, that would be enough. Mm. And that just sowed the seed. It's interesting that it took that to show you to put in our heads that, well, wait, like, you can start a business, you can start an online business. I, it's the funny thing that I was going to say, I had the, went to uni thing, although I wasn't as disciplined as you to get through uni. I lasted probably two months in a law degree that I absolutely hated. Smart. Then, as I said, we won't get into the whole thing. I've spoken about it before. The whole, I did five years acting and then I'm like, you know what? In acting, it's really fun because I was like, with, 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 with that law degree, I was hating it. And I'm like, could I do, put myself through this for five years? Absolutely no. So I did acting just to chase the fun, right? Just mm -hmm. to chase the fun of life. And what's a massive goal that's going to excite me every day to wake up and enjoy the process. And that's one of the biggest things I've learned about being successful in life. And it's not just the amount of dollars. It's like chase enjoying the process. If you can find a goal that you're excited to wake up and work on every day, I feel like you're setting yourself up most likely to be successful. But with the acting thing, it was like, I didn't feel like I had enough control. I had to always be auditioning, please, can I have a job, you know? And you wouldn't get it for these uh, different reasons that were completely out of your control. So I'm like, I want to get back into like more of a stable career. I'm going to, you know, get into corporate and I'm going to do sales. Uh, so I did that for a bit. And it's interesting. Sales is like, if you want to get into a business, but you're not ready, you don't have the funds. I feel like the best experience you could do is work in sales. It's the closest thing you can get to actually being in business. Cause you essentially have to manage your own business. You have targets, KPIs, all that sort of stuff. There's a lot of shit work that you have to do just like there is with business. But the first person that I, the first idea that ever got put into my head that I could start my own company was there was a guy, he was selling pocket squares, ties and socks. Amazing. And just, you know, as a side hustle, probably making an extra couple hundred bucks a week. But I'm like, wait a minute. That was the first time I realized 
that's possible. And then I'm like, if this guy can do it, fuck, surely I can do it. Um, yeah, it's just interesting. We we're talking about how you were planning to move to the States and made me think, do you think in Australia that the system isn't really set up to encourage people to get into business or to think about business throughout the childhood, throughout school years? I, th I think that's not just Australia. I think that's everywhere. Okay. I mean, the absolute path is you go to uni, you get a job. And this is from our parents, right? They went to uni, they got a job and that was respectable. And you would stay there for 20 or 30 years. You would become what, you know, quote unquote, a lifer. <laughs> and you would just give your all to the company. You would get pensioned and that was it. And it's only really recently that the amount of opportunity and I think the landscape has completely changed. You know, I think education has fundamentally changed since I would probably say the, the 90s. I think it makes much less sense for a person to be indebted in Australia or the U particularly the US. I mean, they have interest rates on their loan. It's crazy. But now the, the you know, I, I'm 60K in debt or I was 60K in debt. I've paid a little bit down now, but that's crazy for two degrees for a job that there's no defined path out of it. And I think people are realizing that I don't want to spend five years studying with no like secured future or outcome. And I also don't want to keep working in a job for 20 or 30 years. That That just doesn't make sense to me. And then for what? For a wage in which I can like buy a house and in debt. Now the housing prices are insane. So all these things that I think we grew up with and what our parents tell us are fundamentally different now. And that that's kind of, that hasn't trickled down to the, that's definitely hasn't trickled down to the school system. Yeah. And uh, it'll yeah. take a long time. To oh yeah. And I don't think it will. Oh, I, if I it does, it's going to, yeah, it's going to, the people, yeah, I just don't think it's in their interest to, to change how that Yeah, I think that's that a works. separate conversation, yeah. But like you were saying, the craziest part is not only are you want to go to uni, you're at least looking at 30, 35 grand in debt minimum mm -hmm. if you do like a basic three-year degree. But like you said, most, that 30, 40, 50 grand in debt you're going to be, most people just go into uni because that's the right thing to do. They don't even know, like you said, do I even like science? Do I want to get a job in science? You just get into whatever course you can get into with your marks and think that's the right thing to you. But then you're automatically signing up for 30, 40 grand in debt at a minimum. And sure, there's a lot of great value to having a degree, but like, I think more people should fucking take a gap here. Take a year or two, three years off. Even if you didn't get the ATAR to get into the thing you want, if you go in as a middle, mature age student with like some things you can point to with career wise, you'll be fucking way better off. In my opinion, everyone's just in such a rush to, get into uni as quick as I can, get that job to lock yourself into a mortgage, barely afford the repayments. and Oh, it, it, it's almost criminal to convince someone who's 17, 18, who has no life experience to then get indebted 20 or $30,000. They have no idea how difficult that's going to be to pay back. There is interest that builds up on top of that, or at least inflation. You don't you don't realize that there is interest on the Australian hex. They're like Because oh. it's not like the US, yeah. but that's what I, I didn't, because I, I had like five grand, I paid that off pretty yeah. quick. But my mates are like, I'm fucking paying off all these hacks. It's hardly going down. Yeah, 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 exactly. And then you, and then <clears throat> this is what kills me about <clears throat> um, going to uni. You do, what, what's the first thing that people say when they actually get a job? That they don't use any part of their degree. It's madness. Why are you spending three or four years to then get a job that's loosely related maybe to your degree and that from the first day you realize that, Everything you studied is not relevant or maybe there's a little fraction. There's a sliver of it. 
it, it just, it's criminal. Like, it doesn't say, make sense. Let's say, like, there are certain industries that obviously uni is really important and, and it can't change. No. Lawyers, doctors, medical, that's engineering, that sort of stuff. But let's just say you were going to hire someone to be your marketing manager or marketing exec at Sylvie. What are you going to care more about? Someone that's done a three-year marketing degree or someone that has two or three years actual experience in e-commerce, building their own sites, drop shipping? What's actually going to bring someone to you with more skill set and value for you to shape and grow and train yourself? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, and this is my point. It's fundamentally changed now, right? From like 30, 50 years ago, there wasn't that many degrees you could do. It was doctors or lawyers or the core degrees that actually meant something that you should be qualified for, right? You should, should have 10 years experience if you're going <laughs> to cut me open being a surgeon. Yeah. Now you can do like a, a Bachelor of Liberal Arts, yoga, like whatever it is. I saw something so stupid. With, I'm not going to shout yeah. out of Manash, but there was something to do with ghosts. Like, can you imagine spending money on that? It's criminal. So not only is there inflation, not only does each successive degree or course that they offer diminish the value of all of the courses. The price now has gone up way more than inflation, right? It's like 10 times more than what it was in the nineties. So it just doesn't make sense. And you're absolutely right. If I was to hire someone who had a mark from a, for a very specific marketing degree or angle, I would not be looking at someone who has a marketing degree. I would be looking at someone who's hustled their way to building an Instagram account of 10,000 or a hundred thousand, right? They've, you know, one of the, the uh, we have a girl, Isabel, um, head of Sylvie now. And she, the best part of it, you know, I remember when she came on, she had a little, she had a side hustle that was successful, right? She was like corporate banker, but had uh, two, one or two separate side hustle businesses that she was doing at the time. And if you can do that and be a banker and actually make it successful, but that's what stood out to me that, the you know, that desire is there, right? That kind of that self, it's kind of like a personality. You just have to want to self-learn and self-educate. But that those things matter much more than an absolute degree in that, oh, I got 80% average on my master's yeah. degree, right? Oh, my marketing degree. So, yeah. And, that's even, and even on that, even if you, you, you haven't built anything yourself, like, okay, you can spend $30,000, $40,000 on a three-uni degree. Or could you imagine someone came to you, just spent a year, I went and worked at Happy Skin Co for two months for free. I went to work at Sylvie for two months for free. I went and worked at, you know, all these e-commerce brands, to, you know, two-month, in, three-month internships working for free. Instead of paying money to a uni, you're going to learn so much more value. You're going to understand what's valuable to a business, what isn't, how you actually fit into a team within a business. There's so many other ways to go about it. Um, we're getting sidetracked. I don't want to talk about uni and education too much, but it's yeah. a really interesting point uh, <laughs> that, that, that came up. But um, let's go back to the sock guy. He's selling his socks. Um, where do you go from there? You realize that, look, it actually is possible for me. If this guy can do it, surely I can figure out a way to start my own business. Yeah, so I did try. And my first attempt, because I think you need many attempts. The very, It's very unlikely the first idea or the first thing that you do is going to be successful. So I remember I had one thing. I was like, I, I was in the gym at the time. I was pretty big. I'm like, I will sell some protein powder, but I will, I will give it, I remember, this is so lame, let's say it out loud, that I was like, all right, what if each scoop, because there was this like, who give, I remember looking at who gives a crap and they had the donation model. And I thought maybe we could do that for protein powder. Maybe each scoop could give, you know, like whatever, like give some back to like a, a starving child. And I remember we called it way to help. And there was like five of us in, I got all my friends and 
the group was so big that no decision was made, no individual responsibility, and the whole thing just fritted away. Mm. I remember even calling a branding agency trying to go down that route. I hadn't tested it. It was just I had no idea what I was doing. So anyway, after that clearly flopped, I was still kind of thinking of ideas for uh, a few months, and this is probably about a year in, to be honest. And I saw that from a, and at least Melbourne is very popular with coffee. The first, the genesis for the first idea that Nespresso, their patent had just expired, and that meant that other people could offer their coffee pods, and they were just releasing coffee pods in in um, Coles and Woolworths, and I thought. If they can do it, wouldn't it be cool if instead of Nespresso, which doesn't taste the best, imagine if we could go to like the best cafes in Melbourne and put their coffee and use their branding. And that was the genesis of the idea. And unlike the first one, it was just me, my business partner at the time, my mate who I was on a project with. I'm like, I tell him about the idea. He's like, yes, let's do it. And very differently we put up a landing page and I try to get sales. I try to get sales immediately. I didn't read this methodology anywhere, but I thought I'm not going to waste my time on something that people just don't want. And so we had an Instagram account. It was a bit janky, but it was, you know, sending people to a landing page and we got like a hundred signups, 120 signups. And I thought, and I, and I thought if I could convert these at like 10%, you know, this is I'm doing the maths. Maybe that would be enough validation. And so I put together a Shopify store and I sent an email saying, everyone, hey, it's available. Come get it. Because I thought I could produce this in like two weeks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, it's sold, but sold like 10, you know, $1,000 worth on this day. And didn't That's have to massive back then, though, right? Oh, dude. Yeah. I was on a 40K wage after tax. My take home was 40K a year. So $1,000 in a day was mind blowing to me. I just invented money. And so, but that, that was the genesis that was, that gave me enough confidence that people did want the idea. And that really, that methodology is the same process that I did when I launched Sylvie. And I've recently launched something else, which I can't reveal the name, but it was, it was now it's on a kind of like a multi-million dollar run rate, which is really exciting but it's the $0 up front, launch and test as fast as humanly possible. When I think most people, they approach a business or an idea of, okay, I got to find a manufacturer. I need good branding. I got to get legal. I got to register a trademark. I got to do all these things that cost money, but you haven't done the thing that actually matters from the outset, which is just get a sale. Actually prove demand. And that makes the whole process a lot less scary. Because I think when you're starting a business, the prospect, particularly if I'm talking to e-com, not agency, but e-com, if you are faced with the decision of putting twenty or thirty or forty thousand dollars on the first run, that gets pretty scary, right? And it could be six months of effort or nine months of effort if you're making product changes and kind of like a customization. So it could be nine months of effort or a year, tens of thousands of dollars, and you don't even know if it's going to work. I, d I couldn't do it. I just physically couldn't do it. I didn't have the cash. And I knew I just want to quit my job as fast as humanly possible. <laughs> but that methodology has really served me. And that's what I did with Pot and Parcel. That was a multi-million dollar business. I sold that in 2019. That's what I did in Sylvie. I tested five or six different ideas. And Sylvie was the one that really gained, gained traction. We raised money behind that. But we proved sales before we launched. I can't stress that enough. 
the most recent idea, the exact same thing. Go get sales, prove the idea, and then figure it out. So with that first one, you got the sales before you had any product. Mm -hmm. How did, what did you do from there? Did you, yeah, what oh, was the next uh, And this is the thing, like it's, so with, it's not enough just to get emails. It's not enough to get pre-orders, like, like $1 each. You need real sales because that's the real environment. That's really testing it. Not just family and friends buying it, but just complete strangers wanting to transact and buy your product. Um, what did we do? Oh, yeah, that's the question. What did we do? Uh, we refunded everyone. Yeah, 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 yeah. We refunded everyone because we, I soon realized that it would take me four to five months to actually yeah. get the stock. But that was fine. At that point, it's like it's a given and it's just, all right, we can figure it, uh, stuff out. But I was happy to wait four to five months because I knew it was going to work mm. and no one else was going to do this idea. And I knew like 100% certainty because I've already made the sales. Yeah. And that was it. See, we didn't definitely didn't do that with Happy Skin Co. We we did exactly what you said uh, that you would you weren't in the position to do. But we we spent twenty grand, ten grand each. Me, and my business partner George at the time, um, worked nine months on the idea, and we were just lucky enough that it was a fucking really good idea. Yeah, and it worked. But <laughs> dude, talk to me about that first time. Even even with the even with the sales you refunded, the first time that you've someone that you've never met on the internet has just put put through an order. And you've realized you've created, like you said, you invented money. Yeah. What's going through your head at that moment? It's, it's life changing. Yeah, I know it is. It, I even remember the name of the customer. I remember and our I, first one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it, I remember her name. Um, and yeah, she stayed on for a while. But, she, but in terms of actually getting that, you, you just realize it's possible. Like until that point, it's all theory. It's all... Uh, someone else can do it. Someone else, it, you don't have that confidence in yourself yet. But as soon as you do it, it's like the the Roger Bannister four minute mile. It's you've proven it to yourself, and now you know it's all going to be okay. Because now, if if that was in my worst state, I can now rinse and repeat it. It's only up from here. But people that you say you you saw other people that did it, but. <clears throat> Also, you can use the other people's success as as a as as an example to yourself as well. Look, once he did the four minute mile, look how many people have done it since. Yeah, yeah. So I understand, and it's so much easier to back yourself and go all in when you've had the success yourself, when you've proven it. But if you're not at that point yet, and you haven't done anything, and you're looking for the inspiration to start, just look around you. Yeah. Look at all the people that have done this, and then you took that business from a side hustle, and how long until it took you to to quit your job once you launched? From launch, it was June-ish, 2016, and I quit in December, 2016. Six months. So, yeah, very quick. And, I yeah, I was, I, I was itching to leave. <laughs> but, yeah, so we, we quit. We actually were spending nothing on Facebook ads. I didn't even know what Facebook ads were at the time. The first six months was just pure PR. Yeah, okay, I was going to say, how did you get those sales? Because it's a pretty successful launch. So, <laughs> launch the business. With six months, you by six months you'd quit your job. I imagine that was the first massive goal, right? To be able to get to the position where you can work full time on this. Yeah. No Facebook ads, PR focus. How were you generating sales in in 2016? Yeah. So we were very fortunate in when we launched. We had a contact at Broadsheet, and so that was when again organic and they they had a massive reach, and so they published this thing on their front page, which was, is pot and, partial, pot and parcel revolutionizing the coffee pot industry? 
And I remember that day I was working on this project that actually was Melbourne and Sydney. And that day we did around 5K in sales with no ad spend. And it just blew my mind. My t Again, my take home was like 140 bucks a day. And 5K, I thought, I literally was just floating. Like my mind was just in another world. Uh, but w we set up subscriptions right from the start. And a lot of those people just came back and coffee is just one of those things. Once you like it, you just keep buying it. So then the wor word of mouth just spread and we got more and more PR after that. And then people were telling their friends and then thankfully it built to a stage where it was getting enough income monthly where we, I could at least pay myself a little bit to work on it. Mm. But yeah, I think it was more the nature of the product maybe and, and how uh, viral or word of mouthy it is. I'm not sure it can necessarily be the case, even with Sylvie, because it's just a purchase. Once you buy it once, that's pretty much it. Yeah. But there's something about like high margin consumables mm. that people have to come back and buy it. So that was what kind of floated us for the first six, seven months. How did you, what did you do with the product? Because I imagine, like you said, that the, the patent just lapsed. Were there manufacturers you could go to straight away doing a similar thing? How did you actually make it a, a physical product you could sell? Yeah, so first things first, just called up a couple of manufacturers just to get pricing. And like three or four out of the five in Australia, we just couldn't hit the MOQs. Oh, massive. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah, like <laughs> tens of thousands of dollars. And one guy, he was willing to basically just do it for us just as a, you know, we just kept annoying him basically. Yeah. Like a million phone calls and he's like, all right. Sometimes you just need, need someone to give you a shot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, he gave us a shot. It was for super low, pro slow production. It took like three or four months, which I'm sure wouldn't normally be the case. But that was basically how we hustled the first run. It was, I remember, and we also had to convince a, a, um, a cafe to give us their coffee and to use their name. And I remember we had this meeting. We got rejected by a hundred bunch of people because coffee pods are the antithesis of specialty coffee, right? This was back in the day, 2015. 14, 15. And so we managed to convince one. He actually liked the flavor. This is the owner and the head, kind of like the, the barista. And we were off to the races. That was the, yeah. So we got, so we lined up the manufacturer and then we lined up the, the, the first brand, the coffee. And then after that, it was just much easier to get other people on board. So then we got other brands and then they would give a shout out. So we actually leveraged their audience. And so it was kind of a cool way. I didn't mean it's, to be that from the start, it sounds cool and, and intelligent in retrospect, but I think it was just luck. And they would give us shout outs and they would, you know, kind of like help us build our audience as well. And, and over those three years between 2016 and the time you exited, what did you do to scale? Like what, what changed within the business? I know you were saying you brought on new partners, but did you start going heavy on Facebook ads at a certain point or? Yeah. So a few turning points. The first was going or being on Facebook and this was when it was fairly novel. So we promoted the broadsheet article through as a Facebook ad and that immediately started generating some more revenue and Instagram as well. We then got hundred K in funding. So this through families and friends, it was actually a contact and that was to change the supplier and make the product much more legit. So that's would still be my recommendation. It just launched something. It can look crap. Who cares? And then figure out the, once you've actually got demand and this traction, then you can figure out the packaging and make it look nice and get the good product images and the website and all that stuff that actually requires once off money that isn't necessarily going to turn a pro or like generate revenue in the immediate. 
So that was a big one. We changed supplier and the product looked way more legit. And then we got on Shark Tank in 2018. And that was a really big turning point because the viewership's massive. And I remember we did lots of sales that day. It was very encouraging. And we got a deal. Yep. And oh, took, we did, we did get a deal. Oh, we, did, never, we, we never got through with yeah, it. I yeah. know, right? But on the TV, you shake the head yeah. and, you know, uh, we didn't go through it, through with it because we thought, well, we've already got, we've already raised money. It was a bit of a PR thing. Yeah. yeah. I wish they were fine with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and so that was a big thing. And then, and then we started doing, uh, and then, and then it was really just going back to, um, to, um, Facebook ads and just doubling down and realizing, I can't remember who said it or where I saw it, but it was something like you should do 10 X or a hundred times more ads than what you think you're doing. And then I'm like, all right, I should just put out more. And that was literally it. It was just spending incrementally more. We had this compounding effect where we customers, we would get them and they would come back and buy and buy and they would tell their friends and we had subscribers. And then it was just a matter of letting time figure itself out. Were you guys profitable on the first sale or did you just aim to break even and make the profit off the second, third, fourth sale? Never unprofitable. Wow. Yeah, never unprofitable. I'm not sure if that could be necessarily done now. Mm. Difficult. It can be. I know it can be done now because I just did it very with a new thing, but it is very difficult. And I think you now kind of necessarily going through Facebook, you just have to kind of be a bit more sharper and kind of like how you structure things. Yeah. But yeah, it's definitely diffi more difficult now. Yep. Yeah, it's crazy. That's why I like products like Sylvie, like Happy Skin Co. still are in a way they're easier to start because you're making a, a lot of dollars profit per 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 sale and you can afford to spend a hundred dollars acquisition if my product's 250, 300 dollars. But for people that are selling like a 30, 40 dollar product now, it can be difficult. Like I know a really, really, really smart business person, um, killing it now, but like same sort of a product, lower lower price point, consumable, took six months to start making profit. And now the momentum is building it and it's absolutely killing it. But it, it, it can be difficult, right? Those early days. Yeah, I think the the, well, I know the, well, the, on your new, let me ask you this on your yeah. new business that you've been able to do. What do you think were some of the key things that you did that were enable you to be, um, in the green from the start or in the black from the start? Oh, with Sylvie or oh, the, the new, new or the new, yeah, the yeah. New the new one. business. Uh, so it is a consumable mm -hmm. and it's very high margin. And this is one of the bigger learnings for me is how important the industry and the product is from the get go. I think it was said in the Zappos book. The guy who founded Zappos, I think, was delivering happiness. That the number one decision you can make, which is like poker, is what table in business is what table you're sitting down. Like, what industry are you in? Is it growing? Is the product easy to get? Is it hard to get? And so, this new product, it's really hard to get in Australia. It's kind of easyish to get in the US. So we're arbitraging the regions there, and it's high margin and it's a consumable. And so those things allow us to immediately start compounding, getting customer, you know, you can spend a dollar today or $10 today and you know someone's going to come back and purchase in a month. So that's a, that's a little bit different, but that is a fundamentally different business than Sylvie, which I've learned, which is like a one purchase thing and that's it. Maybe it's like that with Happy Skin Co. Yep. The lifetime value is the AOV. Mm -hmm. Pretty close, yeah. Pretty close, yep. right? It's really, hard to, it's really hard to sell people more stuff. Mm -hmm. We learned that trying to sell bed sheets. We, I, I heard that interview of you guys. We had a similar thing. Yeah. Yeah. We um, obviously the hero product is the pillowcase, which we launched during COVID, which was good timing. I'm sure COVID went very well for you guys as well. Everything 
bringing home, you know, you can't go to spas and salons. So massive, yeah. I can only imagine. But then we, we had massive issues. Like it was cool for three months and then like couldn't really make much stock. And then when that was made, it was sitting in DHL's warehouse in, in, in Hong Kong for yeah. three, four weeks. And then got to Sydney. We're like, yeah, sweet. It's in Sydney. Took a, a month to get released because DHL were busy, sanitizer, face masks, all that stuff. So yeah, it was fun. It was like a, a three month Black Friday essentially. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then the next three months after it, no stock and things are a little bit harder. Kind of evened up, but it was very, yeah, it was good for e-com businesses, as you know. Yeah. So uh, it was very good. We, we, again, we launched with, with Sylvie. And again, that, that time when we did launch, we were fortunate enough, we raised a little bit of money before we launched just on the back of one of the investors was actually a pot and parcel customer by Cosmic Chance. So when he heard about that and it was, it was, you know, Max's contact, my business partner, he wanted to have a chat and he would, you know, he basically took the risk and invested in us and the concept. But that gave us a little bit of runway to start with. We ordered a lot of stock coming into Christmas and then it was Black Friday 2020, right? You can imagine everyone's at home and out comes this cool new product, which it was titled the Anti-Acne Pillowcase. And it just went absolutely gangbusters in the first six weeks. I think we did about 350K. Uh, selling a pillowcase in Australia is not bad. Yeah, it was yeah. a white pillowcase, a white silk pillowcase. Yeah. And and we grew from there. But, you know, there were growing pains like you. We were out of stock a lot. It was doing a lot of pre-sale. It was a lot of just sending people emails. It's going to be a few weeks away. So sorry. And then in a few weeks, it's going to be another few weeks and, you know, trying to manage refunds. We had, oh, dude, when we launched Happy Skin, because our whole initial order was 110 units. We had 10 for influencers. So we had a hundred to sell. Sold it in the first week, took out, and then we just take all the money as much as we can afford instead of 100, 200, then 500 units, a thousand. But it took us probably about four months to catch up and actually have some stock ahead. But we were doing the emails, of course, but well, Talk about, you know how you laugh at the things you did? Fucking hell, man. You know what I mean? We did, bro. Because we were just like, we, 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 we didn't, we managing refunds as best as we could. If anyone wanted a refund, we'd do it. But we're just like, let's just get the money in. We're like, we, we need to opportunity, like um, seize this opportunity with everything we got. We, we had not handwritten, we had uh, physical thank, uh, sorry cards and thank you for waiting. And we, we had like these little love heart lollipops that we put in, we posted everyone. I'm like, Sending physical cards with love heart lollipops that we're sorry and shit like, fuck, yeah. it's only your first business you do shit like that, man. Yeah, the handwritten notes. We did that with Potter Puzzle. Yeah. Every box, me and my business partner, we, before we had a 3PL, it was like, thanks for your order, Jim. You know? <laughs> like, yeah, I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, so, yeah, launch during COVID, but that, I mean. Did you start like, working on it pre-COVID or like while you in COVID when you started working on the actual Sylvie idea? Oh, well, I mean, it went like this. I sold my, I sold Pond and Parcel in 2019. Mm. I'm like, I'm going to travel the world. Yeah. I will see everything, oh. you know, whatever. And uh, my partner's from Colombia. So my first stop was Colombia. And this was in January, 2020. And we were in Bogota and literally a month later, bang, COVID. And it was getting really difficult to come back to Australia. They closed the borders. It was getting really expensive. Oh, yeah, to, flights are ridiculous, oh, right? Dude. And the quarantine as well. Two weeks in a hotel room, which we eventually did have to do, which sucked. How was that? It sucked. Yeah. It sucked. You, I think we paid thousands of dollars to not leave a room. And there was no window. There was a window, but no open window. And they would bring you a ham sandwich for lunch. There you go. Yeah. You know what? I'm but, weird. I, um, I never did that. Uh, like the hotel quarantine, I um 
in a way, I wish I did just to be like, oh yeah, I know what that was like. You know what I mean? But were you in Australia? I was or? in Australia. Okay. Yeah, so. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. If you, maybe if you're overseas, yeah. Um, but no, with Sylvie, I mean, I tested five or six different ideas. And this is something else that I've learned is that probably the first idea or the one of the ideas that you think is going to be good is probably not going to be good. And so you should just test, if you can, five, ten different concepts and then find which one works. And then the odds of success are greatly in your favor. How did you test them? So, I mean, first things first, you just need a list of ideas. And so there are ways now using software online where you can find ideas and mental models, the way you can think about how to change and, and kind of make product changes and how to differentiate yourself. But basically we had a list of probably 20 or 30 ideas. And then from that, we filtered down through like, what are the four or five best ideas? And this would be, is it repeat purchase? What's the margin like? Is it easy to send? Is it easy to make? Like, you know, we didn't actually know because we didn't want to go into find a, a manufacturer at the time, but it was like, it, to our guts, does this feel right? And so we tested, I think it was probably four or five different concepts. To give you an example, one of them were, this was back in the day when they were in Australia, but they were detergent sheets. I wish I had have launched them, the little detergent strips that you get. Do you know what I'm talking about? They're like, um, they're like little bits of paper and you tear them off and they are detergent. There was a company in Canada, True Earth, and they were what the- What are you using for? Deter uh, to wash your clothes. Oh, okay. Yeah, you my, just- <laughs> my, my partner will laugh, of course, and I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, sorry. <laughs> but there were, you know, so there, again, that was a company in, the, in Canada, the fastest growing company in Canada, selling these little detergent strips. So anyway, we tested that. We were testing uh, deodorant that had silver in it, which- we saw another company do it in, I think it was the Netherlands. And we thought that's a pretty cool idea. There was coffee that was infused with adaptogens for, copied from Four Sigma in the US. And I think there was something else in there. And then there was also Sylvie. So now we are testing five different, four or five different ideas. And now we're trying to get sales on all of these ideas. And we actually got sales for every single concept. But Sylvie, when we turned that on, it was like, three or four sales within half an hour. And I remember the first day it was like 500-ish, maybe more. Like within an hour, we'd done like $500. It was just immediate money printing. We As soon as we turned on the Facebook ad, it was just sale, 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 sale. And the click-through rate was incredibly high and all the leading indicators were there. And I thought, this is it. This is yeah. like I knew it. Right. I, I wasn't talking to Max or my business partner at the time. This was just me trying to figure out how to get a little side hustle because what else are you doing in COVID? So, um, and then I give Max a call and I say, Hey, I've got this idea. What do you reckon? And then he's like, let's do it. Mm. So, but that was it. It was me testing multiple ideas. I think that's really important. So what did you do? Do you build landing pages for each of these or? So landing pages to the extent that I, I built a full Shopify store. Oh, full sites. Yeah. Yeah. A full site. I would change the um, the configuration on, on Shopify to go manually capture the payment. So I didn't want to actually take the money. It was no use to me. That wasn't the purpose for it. But it was basically like just a hold on the card, getting people to check out. And then like they're purchased, no money's left. But, you know, I can very easily go back in, void it and say, look, so sorry, this is out of stock. Um, you know, we'll probably launch in three or four months. Are you interested? And then maybe ask them like, why did you buy? Like, what was it? Like, what was it that, you know, why did you buy? 
And, uh, and that was basically it. The idea is not to do this on a big scale because, uh, you know, you don't need much to validate a concept. It's just to actually build a baseline and see, okay, between the coffee and the deodorant and the strips and, and the pillowcase, what is, what's the, the winner out of this? And what sort of creatives were you running for the test? Video or just static? Just one photo ad. Just uh, we would get a photo ad. We'd pro we would get it off Adobe, um, just stock images. And it would be like the same copy for every single thing. Introducing X, the new solution, the new mechanism to solve your problem, Y. And then it would be dot points under underneath. Like, you know, we would be like, delivering from Australia or Australia first, you know, um, kills bacteria linked to acne. Get yours today, basically. Like the classic DR copy. The cla yeah, 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 direct response, right? Which is what you should be going for. And we would send people to the Shopify store and then we would make sales that way. And that's, that's basically how we validated the concept. Uh, we did that very, it was just a day test, really. Um, maybe you can do it for a few extra days. But we, we decided just to do a day test. And then we launched basically six, seven months. I after. love that. So you're learning with, uh, you're launching with so much confidence in the idea that you know there's a real demand for it in the market. Yeah, no, I, I would never launch anything unless I knew 100% that sales that like there, there is sales there. You can't even look at other markets and other businesses and say, oh, this guy is selling. You just maybe they entered, uh, you know, way before you. It just like if we try to do teeth whitening kits now. It would be dumb to look at High Smile and say, oh, those guys are doing it. When they're so entrenched, this product has been around for seven years. You need a, if you were going to do it, then do it the way I would do it, which is try to get a sale. Get the money in first and do it as fast as humanly possible. Don't try to overthink the process. We aim to get the products or ideas tested within a week. And so now, if you can imagine, you can just pump out ideas and you know with a high confidence interval whether it's going to work or not mm. um so many questions i want to ask for this so with that product then you've you've got your product you know where you like this is the one how do you then take this what's the next steps you go to max hey what do you think keen what talk, talk to me about the product development what's that look like yeah the, the the immediate next step is to find a supplier and to see if it's possible and then you, re, you again following the the 10 to 100x rule, like you should be reaching out to, I think we reached out to 25 suppliers or 30 suppliers, which is a lot. It's not insignificant amount. And really only two of those were, they could do what we wanted to do. So we got a whole bunch of samples in, but there was a bit of complication. We wanted to infuse silk with silver. So we had to find the tech to do that. We had to find a manufacturer that was able to do it. And then we had to also test it with there's a company called SGS. They're basically a global certification company for testing. We wanted to show that it's actually antibacterial and that it is like, it's like a real so legitimate. All the, the research oh yeah. On it. yeah, 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 exactly. You, you need to launch at that point. It's launching with a good product and it's launching with a product that really delivers and does what it says. And that took probably six to nine months. So were you the first pillowcase of that type in Australia? We were the first silk. Silk Pillowcase was having a boom. That was the seed of it. Yeah, I saw a bunch of those businesses booming. Yeah, yeah. So Silk in 2019 and 20 was absolutely pumping. And one of the USPs, which was, again, one of the mental models I have, is how do you double down on a the, the thing that the product is solving for? And so 
silk pillowcase. There are benefits for sleep. It's like nice to sleep on. Um, there's benefits for hair. There's also benefits for skin. It's really good for if you have acne or sensitive skin because it clears a lot of the irritants and it's actually kind of a little bit antibacterial anyway. And so that was the that was the hook. There was another company in the US that was selling silver infused just bed sheets and stuff like that. And the idea was just to put them together. Mm. Silver infused meaning that they would it's naturally killing the bacteria. And so we tried to figure out a way to do that and that was that was that was the concept that we tested. Yeah. One of one of the things I've learned, one of the biggest most important things I've learned and from from chatting I imagine your answer is going to be the same. The most important ingredient regardless of how good you are at running ads or media buying or influence, whatever you want to be, is product to market fit. Yeah. 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 Product to market fit, product market founder fit as well. Like, yeah. are, are you actually interested that's in it? That's the next step. You know, that's like next step. As a, that, that's very often with, because um, we're very experienced in e-com, we could execute on it really effectively and well. It would be a different story if I try to launch a SaaS company or an app. I don't know how to code. My product, my, my founder fit is very poor. Even if I have the best app idea, it could have been Facebook. I couldn't execute on it. Mm-hmm. So that, the opportunity has to fit you in a way as well, not just the opportunity meets the market and the, the timing. For sure. Um, what do you look at? You said you have like a bit of a criteria. What are you looking at when you're looking for a new product to launch? Like not a new product to launch in Sylvie, but like, okay, next business. What are you looking at? What are you identifying as these? What are these key indicators of an area for opportunity? Yeah, so it's a good question and it really depends on the product, but really niching down, it, can I make this for a specific person? Absolutely, go. And no, as in like, can I, if the product exists, okay, yeah. but maybe it's uh, something for men or, okay, here's a great, okay, exa- yeah, okay, here's yeah. a great example. It was like toilet wipes. There's a company in the US called Dude, Dude Wipes. wipes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so how do you make it for guys, right? Like that, that and make... What do they do? They make it slightly larger. <laughs> that's their that's their hook, right? And yeah. they have like silly poo and you know like those uh, those puns. Their emails are hilarious. But one would be changing the product in a way to better serve it, serve a market, and that's pretty much the best way. Is it a, and is that easily done? You don't. I don't think you necessarily want to product launch a product to begin with that's going to require a whole bunch of customization and a year R&D. I think you just want to get it out there. Get the money in. Use that money to then differentiate the product. Money first. Launch something generic as long as there's maybe uh, – as long as you can do that and it's enough to get traction to begin with, then you can use uh, that money to invest into product development. I think that actually most of the differentiation comes later after you've launched, right? Um you know, you can you can even, as I'm, so, as I'm sure you know, you can launch a product and just sell it better. You can call out the product features and you don't have to change it at all. You could just have a better website and that might be enough for you to get going. And so that was, that was, we did, it was quite easy in the end to, well, not easy, but it was simple enough to launch Sylvie with the, with the silver infused. If it was any more difficult, like like literally like we were explored like uh, making silver threads in the pillowcase that became too difficult. And so it was a, like kind of a solution that we could apply to the pillowcase that would stay in and that was easier. So yeah. it's, yeah, it's yeah. kind of like picking the lowest hanging fruit along the way. Yeah. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Too many people get caught up with the perfect idea, the perfect product. Everything's got to be perfect. I think it should be to a certain extent because 
in my opinion, like you said, it is a little bit harder in 2023 compared to 2016 to just run a basic art and, and, and get and get sales. Some people, if you have the skills, will, but I think get it to a certain extent and launch, particularly if you've tested it and you, and you know that there is some demand there. Um, I think that's really important. I want to get into some of the stuff you guys did to uh, to obviously grow Sylvie into what it is today. But before we move on to, to, to focusing just on Sylvie, that uh, experience that you had with um, the coffee business and, and, and you exiting, what do you think's the biggest lesson that you learned about yourself or about business that you took forward into Sylvie and everything you'll do? The biggest lesson? Um, that's a good question. It's hard to say the biggest lesson. I think there were multiple lessons. I think there's a lesson from a personal perspective, which is I don't think there's a industry you can go in that has a bigger growth opportunity personally than entrepreneurship. And that was very clear to me to keep doing it. The way you grow, the things you have to deal with, the ambiguity, the self-confidence, it's not even about the business in the end of the day. It's about you growing as a person. Yep. So number one, that is by far the, 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 the best outcome from the, the first business. I had the confidence to do Sylvie. Yeah. Um, and there's another question I want to ask you about, about your exit. Now, I read uh, or I, I heard somewhere that you exited right before the COVID boom, sold it to some guy. Um, yeah, about that, about me selling the business and then a year later being sold for five times what I sold it for. <sighs> that hurts. Yeah, it's uh, – what can I say about that? I think – I don't regret it because it was the right decision at the time. And at 2019, who could have predicted that there would be a global change pandemic that would completely alter business for at least two years, three years, and that you wouldn't be able to go to the supermarket, you wouldn't be even allowed outside, and, you know, the the, the demand basically kind of 5x, 10x for every business that was pumping online. So I couldn't have predicted that. And I sold it in 2019 to the investor who actually originally invested. It was a family office. And, you know, they, they were going to do a really good job with the business. I really liked the guy. Um, they had a great vision for it. I had been running it for three to four years at that point as well. And it was I just felt it was time for me to move on. I was 28, 29, I think. And I was just obsessed about traveling and going off and doing other things. And I almost wanted to prove it to myself that I could sell it and then figure it out later and I could do another business. Because mm. the first time you could be lucky, but the second time you ain't lucky. Yeah. That's you, you know the game. And so anyway, I did sell the business in 2019 and then I stayed on for, for a little while, probably nine or so months doing the marketing. And I could see right at Feb, March, the revenues just explode yeah. and credit. No, actually fair play to the the family office who bought it because they, they absolutely timed it to perfection and they also played it very well. I won't go to the specifics, but they had a, a they played it very well in the way they sold it and how they positioned it to the buyer. And I, you know, I, I would not have done that. So I wouldn't have sold it at that time and I wouldn't have taken it to the point at which they could have commanded that price. The guy was in M&A as well, mergers and acquisitions. I was not. I'm a pleb. I've, I had no clue about that. And he was very au fait and experienced. So there's a classic 
opportunity meets the right person as well. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, it does sting a little bit, but it all worked out, you know, well, you for reason for the best. It's just it's just one of those things. You just have to smile and laugh about it because, well, like you said, yeah. there was nothing. You made the right decision for yourself at that time. And yeah. plus, who knows if you were doing that, Sylvie, would that have happened? Would it have happened how it happened? So, oh, it never would have. Yeah. Everything would have been different. Yeah. So, you know, you can't look back on things like that and – Kick yourself. You just have to learn and have a laugh. Yeah, you got to do that. Um, so that 350k in six weeks. I think that's even. I think we get hit like a million in like three months. But I think we that was even faster than our um a million a month in revenue or a million no, total. We hit a okay. million in total revenue in three months, and that was still is fucking mind blowing. Yeah. But how did you guys? We we see we were like we worked very hard and 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 we took advantage of our opportunities to the fullest. But there was obviously a lot of, like, we were the first to launch that product. Nothing else. like Well, there was in the bottom shelf of Shaver Shop, but we were the first e-com brand to, to launch this product. So it was just like, how many people can we get this product in front of their faces to launch with? But how did you guys make so, like, what was, did you have a, you guys had a lot more experience by the time you launched than we did. We were green eyes. Hitting 350K in six weeks is a massive achievement. What was the launch plan? What did that involve to be able to, to hit those targets? Yeah. Uh, firstly, Happy Cinco, I think I heard that in like 2018, 19. You were pumping it then. So yeah, yeah. I was, yeah, we were across it. The econ community is small enough in Australia yeah. that we we're like, these boys are doing something right. I wasn't super close to it, but I had absolutely heard about it then. So yeah, it's interesting to hear the numbers that you were doing. Yeah. But for us leading into the launch, we basically came into it right around the, it was timing as well, coming into Christmas. We launched November 1st and we started with an influencer push. And so we, I think we sent out about three to 400 uh, basically pillowcases to influencers within the same network. So you create this nice splash. Yep. Then we went very hard with ads and this is photo ads. And also we paid an agency, I don't know, um, yeah, Brand Booster, if you know those guys. Yeah, yeah. They're over in Perth. Yeah, I know that Jai. Yeah, the, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, uh, Absolute Hustler created some great videos for us. And that's what we launched, like crushed it with the videos. And that's what we launched with. And um, and then what else did we do? And then we we did a PR push, but we went traditional PR, but then we also went performance PR. Mm. I don't know if you ever use a performance PR Link platform, Linkbee, yeah. which is, I love Linkbee. Yeah, so I'm going to ask you about that. I saw <laughs> yeah, a lot of yeah. articles about you guys. I'm like, ah. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So... Yeah, we went very hard with PR. We went very hard with influencers. We pushed the Facebook ads, the quality. We put out 10x at like an insane amount of ads. We were constantly testing the homepage and the product page, CR. And we had this article and I remember news.com, which was basically this great article right up. And that had like these before and after photos. And that just basically yeah. exploded. So... Yeah, it was timing with aggre aggressiveness. Mm -hmm. We had a little bit of money funded the investment to so be able to be able to do up. that, yeah. right? That's not in the reach of everyone, but that's basically what we did. And then we also had the stock to fuel that. Yeah. So we could actually service the demand, which is a big one. Yeah, yeah. You know? And how do you find PR and the performance PR works for you guys? Oh, that it, it, it performance PR is really cool for two reasons. You can get into you can get into magazines that are really high up and they might not necessarily be the best like fit or the, they might not make a lot of sales, but they seem very reputable. Like, especially in the U S refinery 29 and, 
um, what else is there? Like Vogue and like you can get HQ and all that stuff. Uh, GQ rather. That so there's that side just to put it on your website that you've been seen and you know you're you're legitimate. But then also because it's a pay per click that the publisher, some publishers write articles in a way that very convincing and very interesting. And so we would be features on BuzzFeed yeah. and that would just explode for us because they are shameless and they <laughs> just go hard on the sales copy. Yeah. And so it was this like nice one, two, when people go to our site, we look very legitimate and we were obviously, uh, but we we're getting much more qualified clicks as well through BuzzFeed and through, you know, uh, 10 squilling different other yeah. articles. And then we could retarget them, obviously. And we would capture their email. We did this. I'll share this little hack. Go for it. We basically, you don't want to give a discount up front. What we did was we had a spinner wheel and it was a secret spinner wheel. Everyone does this now, but we were the, we were one of the first at the time and it was, Get your secret discount, but you have to get to checkout to find out what it is. And at that point, people have already gone through the purchase process. They've added the thing that they want to the cart. They've said yes internally a million times. And then they get to the checkout and then they know they've got a discount and then they're putting it in. They're putting their name in. Like it's just that it's getting them warm, right? And that converted like crazy and we would have their e email address that we could then target them on the back end with a Clavio email sequence. Yeah, wow. So that very was, simple. yeah, that, that was very, very effective. We don't use a spinner wheel anymore. One site speed, it kind of makes the site a bit slow and just a, mm. maybe not the greatest for branding. But then I think when you're starting out, who cares about branding? Exactly. You just need money in. Everyone talks about looking after brand and, and even <clears throat> and even on that, like, oh, I don't want to, even do a sale or a discount because it's going to hurt my brand. doesn't matter if you're hurting your brand if you don't have any sales. Like, what brand are you protecting? Yeah. And be like, nah, if you, if, you, if you put your product on sale, no one will ever buy it. Or like, when it's full price, mate, okay. Oh. Like, you've sold no, like five units. And to that point, you should see some of the ads that we put out to begin with. Like, you couldn't – there was just no branding whatsoever. We would put out memes to see if they got sales. We would put out video ads, influencers from all different types. You actually have to test – to an insane degree to find out what actually works. So you really don't have a brand to, st to start with. All you're doing is intelligence gathering, getting enough information for you to arrive at a high quality conclusion. And that is these customer groups buy, buy from us. It, when we launched, we sent our pillowcases to say like the 18 to 24 year olds. Wasn't them. They never purchased, although they love the product. It was the mothers buying it for the adolescents was a massive market, didn't even think about it. But you can only get to that point if you're testing and through a, a lot of data. So when, when we were launching, we were not precious about brand. It's just anything to get money and anything to generate revenue and anything to give us enough data to make the best right next decision. And, and how do you guys operate now? You're obviously the business has matured a bit a few years in. How do you operate now? How do you, how do you continue to, to, to grow the business or look for new opportunities to refine things? One of the easiest ways to grow a business that I've learned is just to go to different markets because you can produce singularly in your supply chain and say making it in China, which we do. I think 90% of the world still comes from China. We make it there and then we just send it to Australia. We send it to the US. We send it to Canada. We send it to UK. We've got warehouses there. 
where then they can fulfill. We've got different Shopify stores, which is, you know, you just change the subdomain, australiau.mysylvie.com, US or ca.mysylvie, uk.mysylvie, and you don't have to reinvent anything. You can actually just duplicate your ads on Facebook. You can do the exact same processes. You can use Linkbee to different art, to different regions, and you're tackling a whole new customer group, right? And that, that has been a very effective way for us to not only de-risk a single market, because sometimes maybe Australia doesn't work as well, or maybe US, but then also just find new customers. For for us, I, I agree. We, we've done that to a certain extent. We, we went harder with that in, in the earlier days. <clears throat> but with with our product in particular, because it's um it's obviously a higher uh, price point, so it's a bit more considered just in the price point itself. But also, what what I learned is laser hair removal, IP hair removal, is a very cultural thing. Mm-hmm. So Australia is the biggest in the world in terms of per capita that actually uses laser hair removal. Where you can still rinse and repeat that over to Canada, US, and New Zealand. When you start going to like you like even the US, they still have a lot of people that do waxing. Like it's there's, it, there's a big cultural differences and going into Europe, there was a lot there. It's like it did, got to the point for us that it, we could rinse and repeat, you know, essentially duplicate everything across. But our performance was uh, a lot less than some of the other markets. So it's like, okay, we could exist here. And then obviously we're paying more in shipping duties, that sort of stuff. We could exist there. But really for us and our product, we had to identify it probably needs its own strategy. It needs its own, you know, everything needs to be bespoke and, and catered to this. Do we want to invest in that right now? Is it the best use of our time and resources, which no matter how much money you're making, you have limited resources. So the best way we scaled our business and, and de-risked was just diversifying channels. So like the PR stuff, influence, organic content, retail was a massive one for us. Like, yeah, honestly, if, if yeah, moving into retail is probably the best decision that we've ever made. Um, and it was something that I didn't want to do for, for, for a long time. So for us, it was like moving into the new channels as many as you can, because for us, the way that I've, my experience, you can scale any one platform to a certain point and then anything past that, you're going to diminishing returns. But you, that doesn't mean you're tapping out the whole of Australia per se. If you can find new different ways to get in front of people's faces, we've found that that had worked really well for us. Have you guys had any, like an experience with that, just adding being looking able f- like for new channels you could sell into or yeah it, and that's a really great point because i think new channels fall under the same kind of way of thinking of going to different countries oh, for sure for sure and so it's just where are the customers and where are they shopping right i want to emphasize we when we launch in a new region we do it on the smallest scale possible and we do little test orders mm. so any big decision that we make we always try to validate it first before we go hard into it in terms of physical retailers, we actually are just going through a big, big rebrand. We've changed the name. It's not going to okay. be, uh, I almost just said the name. Uh, it's not going to be Sylvie anymore, yeah. TBC, but um, basically now we have worldwide trademarks, which mm. becomes a thing when you want to go onto Amazon, when you want to look to get acquired, when you want to just protect the brand. Mm. We have a lot of copycats. And Sylvie is not, uh, it's a, not a very defensible name. There are a lot of companies called Sylvie and all the iterations around Sylvie. So that's a part of our strategy, but we've just, we're going to go through a, a big rebrand and the packaging is going to be a lot more store friendly. So whilst we're like 99% online, yeah. to your point, I think at some point you've got to be on retail. Mm-hmm. I think at some point you've got to be on Amazon as well. We abstained from Amazon to our dismay. 
And I think at some point you just got to go to different areas at some point in terms of different countries. With um, those issues you ran into in the US, what, what, how did you make that decision of deciding for trademarks and everything, the best thing to do is rebrand? Well, we just can't be in the US. There's another company that is not wanting us to be there and the US is quite litigious. And these are things that you don't think about at the start. Mm-hmm. Certainly I think about them now, yeah. but you don't think about it at the start. But when you really want to legitimize yourself, and again, you go the trademark ra- trademark route, when you hit a certain size, and this is not right when you start, but when you hit a certain size and then any buyer will want you to be trademarked because they want to buy a business that's vulnerable. So you get to that point you try to do the trademarks. What happens is you lodge the name and then they basically put it to the market for anybody to object or oppose. And that's what happened. So now we've finally, we've got a different name, which is a whole different process when you're two years into it, fundamentally changing the name of the business and the logo and everything. It's just horrific. Yeah. And so you just, yeah. <sighs> yeah. We've had similar experiences, um, not, not to the extent like we've got all our trademarks in our core in our core um, classes anyway, but for some certain areas you wanted to expand into. No, no, no it, <sighs> yeah. You don't know the first time. Everyone's like, why haven't you launched a skincare product? I'm yeah. Like, oh. Didn't think of that. Of course. Yeah, yeah. of course. Try to do it. There's yeah. another Happy Skin Co face mask. Yeah. So. And it's just like for us anyway, it, it was a fucking pretty um, – Pretty shit period going through all that, trying to make a decision. Do we rebrand? Do we what? All going through all the, we went and explored all the options, of, which I can't even talk about, acquisitions, brand rebranding. And we just decided we'll just fucking double down and smash everyone in IPL. So yeah, it's fucking, you don't know the first time you launch a business fan and think about Happy Skin Co. What an amazing, easy yeah. to remember <laughs> brand name, you know, but yeah. Once you come up with it, once you try to come up with a name and then you go on to the US trademark search database and the WIPO or the European trademark search database and you type in the name and there's 10,000 iterations and we have a lawyer as well. So we would email them and like, what about this name? And then there would be some other company with a different iteration that's sort of selling the same thing. Mm. And then it's like, maybe boys, but maybe they have a lot more money than you. Yeah. And so they could just take you to court. And so you just come up with like, you know, lists of names that are just, you can't do, right? And then you're like, does it make sense for the brand? Does it make sense for the domain? Can we get the domain? It's horrific. Naming a company is horrific. Something that now that's something you want to protect. Well, the rebranding process, it'll be interesting. I'm sure you guys have mapped out how you're going to approach that, but big project, I imagine. It's, it was all last year. Yeah. It's, it's thankfully, thankfully been done now. Everything's in production. So it's just got to get photos and video assets and stuff like that. But yeah, it was big. Yeah. Really, really, really. Um, I love hearing about some of these moments because people don't, people don't hear this shit on the, like, obviously you don't go around talking about this sort of stuff oh. so publicly, but I think it's important for people getting in business or people that are starting e-commerce business to realize all the risks and all the things you, you might have to deal with down the line. I, I have some horrific story. I have with Sylvie, if, I don't know if you want to hear it, but give me, it's, it's, give whatever's it's, public and you're willing to talk about. Yeah. Give, yeah, give, yeah, me, yeah. Give, me, give me, give me something. So I remember, so we raised probably close to 2 million with Sylvie, well, a million and a half. That was at the time. And this was, and we were doing pretty much six months, six, seven months in a million a month in sales. So we were pumping and we go to the U S and a big part of it was, okay, people are buying pillowcases 
let's sell bed sheets, let's sell sheet, sheet sets and duvet covers and blah, 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 blah. And we, right, again, we raised so, like for me, that's a, that's a lot of money, oh, a sure. million and a half, right? And we could, we go to an existing supplier and we say, we want the bed sheets, we want these. We got the stock in, we tested them, half tested them, right? We slept on them, it was fine. We're like, okay, done. But nothing to the extent that we should have now that I've learned. We go to the US and number one, we send the stock to the US. I get an email. This was mid 2021, right? When COVID was still popping. And I get an email from the supplier with the invoice for the air freight because he sent air freight sheets, which are 10 times the cubic volume of the pillowcases. And he didn't say that to me. 100K, just right there. Boom. So number one, that 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 sucked. But I'm like, all right, we're making money. It's all right, you know. Oh. You just sh you shrug it off. Yeah. And we sent, we probably sent five, six, seven hundred thousand. A ballpark, hundred k of bed sheets, just straight off the bat. We're like, we're gonna be so rich. We're gonna make so much money. Get the Lambo catalog. Yeah. You know, this is it. I'll take a yellow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Stockland started selling it. It's okay. Go, goes pretty well. Within two, three weeks, we get a cease and desist from another company that ultimately is a real thorn in our side. Mm -hmm. And basically they say to us, give us all your stock and stop operations immediately. And our Australian lawyer, lovely guy, but not near as ferocious <laughs> as a yeah. US lawyer. He's like, I think you're going to lose this one, boys. <laughs> And so we had to think to ourselves, do we want to fight this? Yeah. Or do we want to, I don't know, like, or like how are we going to solve this? And so we couldn't just write off the stock. So we decided to sell the stock, no, not sell the stock, move the stock from the US to the only other place with the same betting size, which is Canada. I, can't, uh, I didn't country. even know there's different betting sizes. Oh, no, there are different betting sizes. I learned that as well. In <laughs> Australia, in the US and UK, they all have different betting sizes. Canada and US have the same. So we've sent the stock, half, basically seven, all, all of our stock, right? More than a million dollars to Canada. We're paying tax again and the freight again. That's another 100K. And now we're in a market that's 10 times less yeah. smaller than the US and now this is September, October, and iOS, Apple rolls out the privacy <laughs> updates and suddenly Facebook ads go crazy and plummet. And what I also didn't know, and it was my first year in the US, is that their winters in Canada are crazy. Oh, you don't want silk sheets. <laughs> you know, oh, not, not even that, but getting the product to the customer we would get charged by FedEx $30 Canadian for every product, every shipment to a customer. And they would just like turf it in front of their, their, their houses and they would freeze over and people would complain that like the whole thing's destroyed, frozen bed sheets. And then they, so that was a whole issue. So suddenly a unit economics are just destroyed. Mm. We can't acquire customers like what we used to, suddenly the cost of acquisitions twice as high, the size of the market's 10 times less. And now the product complaints roll in about the bed sheets being, oh, there's fraying and pilling and da da da. And it was just like, it all came to a head. I had expanded the team to probably not eight or nine. And then it got to around Jan or Feb. 
and we'd lost like 50K for three or four months, just every single month. And I'm walking to the office and I just think I need to reduce (laughs) and to scale back. And some tough decisions were made out of forcibly the nature of the business. But though that decision to go so hard and break my mental model of always test first costs us so dearly that it was like 18 months. Really until now, we still have some of the stock that we can't move. But that for as much as Sylvie feels like a success story and how fast we scaled, there are things that, you know, you, yeah, there's, there's uh, a yin to the yang in the business world. And there were some pretty low periods there. And you need to constantly, no matter how successful your business is, you need to constantly pivot and adjust or you won't survive. Let alone grow, you won't survive. You just, you're getting punched in the face daily. Sometimes it's a jab, sometimes it's a right hook. Yeah. Or sometimes it's a straight. So yeah, that was a big one. But again, the the, the joys of business. What goes through your head? Because I've had moments getting letters that you don't want to fucking get. <laughs> yeah. What goes through your head when, when, when these things pop up? How are you feeling? I felt like that was my second rodeo and I was pretty resilient but I'd never dealt with the cease and desist. I've never dealt with the amount of money and the scale that we were doing. So it was still fairly new to me. And you just, I think you just take it to a place where you either maybe freak out or you just go into this numb mode where you execute and you don't think about it too much and you just deal with it as it comes up. And it's like, you almost go into this, what do we do? How do we solve this? We're never out until we're out until we have no money and no customers. Yeah. So there is a way to figure it out. And that was the mode that I think I went into. To, to me, because it's, it's in, in my opinion, it's it's so much harder to make decisions when there's so much weight on, the, if you choose this way or that way, the, the consequences are massive. To me, you just have to be okay with, okay, from this position, what's the worst possible thing? And if that happens, fuck, I'm still sweet. Got to accept it. Got to move forward. Got to accept it. Yeah. Yeah. Come, can't beat yourself up too much about it as well. Yeah. I think uh, n- nothing's ever, no decisions really made in isolation. Well, it should be. And so, yeah, it was just, how, do, how can we learn from it? And we're still around and we've recovered, thankfully. And so it's all good. It's, it's, it's all good. It makes the story that much more interesting. Yeah, exactly. And um, we'll start to wrap up because we've been going for a bit, but a couple more, I want to ask you a couple last questions before we finish. <clears throat> As going from someone that had a successful brand, exited, and then going into your second brand, um, how do you still maintain the importance of, or, or the understanding, the importance to approach everything with a learning mindset, and that you still have so much to learn when it can be easy to pff, I just look at many million. I just made five million bucks a year with my business, exited. How do you not let that confidence cloud you? As as Jeff Bezos says, it's day one. Every day is day one. Otherwise, you just get beaten down by the world. And there are competitors out there looking to take your bread. And so you really need to be on top of the game. The move, the world moves so fast that you cannot just sit back and think, I know everything now, particularly when it comes to business and marketing and all that stuff. And with new technologies, you just have to be on top of it. You have to be trying the new thing. You have to be thinking uh, differently and being more resourceful than your competitor because there are people coming for you. That's it. 
There are people coming to take your livelihood. It's you against them, player versus player. It's a zero-sum game. Every time someone else sells a, a, a pillowcase, for example, we do not. There's a customer that will not come to us. So it's a combination of just life lessons. You really have to stick to your principles. I think getting clear on your principles and operating principles is really important. How you think about life and how you go uh, about what you do. And I think being a lifelong learner and being humble are pretty important aspects to that. Well, especially when you're in e-commerce, look how quickly things change. I bet you what, look at what you do now, that like from the start of Sylvie, look at from the start of your first business, how different landscape is and then we have things come out like chat gbt which i'm sure is gonna mm. massively affect e-commerce in our world over the next forever probably yeah. like ai you just can't you can never rest on your laurels yeah yeah dude, there's so many i was thinking like there could be like made up influences you could just type in somebody holding a sylvie pillowcase mm. and say this to the camera and they will there will be videos it, 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 you won't even know what's real and what's yeah. not yeah. Super exciting. Crazy world. Um, so last thing we'll finish up. What's what's 2023 look like for you and Sylvie? What's you've obviously gone through that, everything's stabilized. What does the next year look look like for you? And how do you how do you approach setting your goals both personally and, and for the business? Yeah, few few ones in there. Uh goals I set at the start or the end of every year and kind of just coming to the, the start of the start of the the you know, this year. And I try to divide them up into different categories. So there's, you know, financial kind of goals that I have, um, business goals, hobby skills, travel exploration, and seeing what I can do this year to kind of fit into my, you know, my five or 10 year kind of loose life plan. It's very loose. In terms of Sylvie, obviously going through the rebrand, we spent a lot of 2022 to execute on that and i'm excited to roll out in the us australia uk canada Everywhere. no problems come <laughs> at me boys you know we're no you know hopefully no season desist i think we're good now yeah uh go on amazon maybe follow your strategy and try to get into retail i think would be really exciting and just start to solidify the business and grow it rather than trying to play catch up mm. i think that's 2023 it's exciting times ahead um look man there's we could talk for it easily double what we did and maybe we'll chat off air about some other stories and stuff but thanks for coming on man really really enjoyed chatting to you and keen to obviously stay in touch and watch what you do from here and we're still babies in this game so again congratulations on your success so far for anyone that wants to find you where's the best place to get in contact yeah jump on personally just go on linkedin mm -hmm. i think if you just type in ben goodman sylvie into linkedin that's the best place and we can connect through there Awesome. All right. Thanks again, bro. Appreciate it. Easy. Thank Cheers. you. All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode or you got something out of it, do yourself a favor, do me a favor, do your friends a favor and share this with them and they can come along on this journey with us. Thanks again and I'll see you next time.